0: jesse Orch, the ceo of RanAM productions and the producer of the be Attento podcast we are very excited to bring you this greatest hits episode from the first year of the be Attento podcast when this podcast returns we will have two new hosts we wish chandler the best in his future endeavors and maybe one day he'll be a guest on the be Attento podcast the be Attento podcast is brought to you by atento capital a tesla based venture fund focused on driving returns through early-stage venture investment and local economic development and job creation. Atento is Spanish for helpful, careful, thoughtful, conscientious, and polite. Now enjoy our Greatest Hits episode. We start with Anna Mason, partner at Revolution Capital and the Rise of the Rest Seed Fund. And then you're going to hear from Adrian Court of Alchemy, then Michael Cardamon from Acceler Prize, and then Rodney Sampson, CEO of the Opportunity Hub, Marlon Nichols of Mac Venture Capital, Dor Abu-Hasir, founder and CEO of Percepto, Erica Lucas, founder of Stitch Crew, mercedes Bent, and Lightspeed Venture Partners, Marn Lean and RespondFlow, Enda Martinson and Clarence Tan, the co-founders of Bottle Learning, Ryan Lutberger, co-founder and CEO of CleanCult, and finally, Dylan Gambardella and NextGenHQ.
1: It seems like you just based on the work with Rise of the Res have the opportunity to see so many different ideas, so many different business models, so many different ecosystem models uh, from the cities that you visit. And so would love to hear from you. What are some of the common indicators for success, both within individual founders and companies, but also within, you know, larger startup ecosystems?
2: Sure. So, on the company front, one of the markers that we screen for when we look at investing in companies from an early seed stage standpoint are, are the competencies and, and the experiences of the core team, not just the founder, but the core team. And this is where I find I think we argue that uh, rise of the rest companies and startups that are based in these you know uh, cities all across the country really have a leg up and an advantage to some of their counterparts who are launching on the coast. And the core advantage, and we see this with so many of our founders across our portfolio, which numbers more than 135 companies across nearly 70 cities in the country, we see that they have, many of them have a deep foundational legacy expertise Around the core industry that they're trying to innovate in. For example, you might see a, B to, a last mile logistics company that plays in the B2B HVAC and electrical supply space. We have a, a company in Minnesota that works on that. Founder actually used to own a Johnstone supply franchise and was his own first customer. He originally built the technology for himself. And then when his other competitors started to say, hey, that that is incredibly useful. Can we use that too? Can we buy that too? He he realized that he was really onto something and spun out uh, a great technology business as a result of that. And we see examples like that in so many of entre- our entrepreneurs and in so many of our cities. It's, it's a little crazy to think about that of the investment capital that goes into venture is concentrated in those three coastal states, but 85% of the Fortune 500 is located in all these cities all across the country that we track and we map to with Rise of the Rest.
1: Do you have any tips for early stage entrepreneurs as to how they can be very intentional about building out a a positive and strong culture within their businesses?
3: Absolutely. Just a, a quick note. I am writing a book. It's called Conscious Culture, How You Think, Act, and Connect to Inspire Uncommon Business Results. And let me just talk about kind of a startup. You are passionate about whatever you're designing, building, selling, right? You may have kind of those first clients or customers, whatever you're selling in terms of your product. And as you're starting out, who and what you want to be. But as you begin to grow and add employees or partners, you, that can be lost pretty quickly. When I talk to early stage, high growth, and even mature companies, I think it's first fundamentally to understand what culture is. Because sometimes you think, oh, it's this warm and fuzzy thing. It's just this feel-good thing. It doesn't really make a difference. For me, I think it's very tangible. It's how you think, act, and connect. So think is the words you use to express who you are. As you started, you kind of described how you express your organization, right? So from that fundamental is the words you use to express your culture. Very important. Then the act are the things and behaviors that you do to reflect that culture. So if things are consistent, they align, right? So for example, at Alchemy, uh, trusted accountability is a very important element of our culture. Well, trusted accountability to us means doing the right things always, sharing our knowledge and expertise, right? So if we're, if our executives or someone's doing counter to that, right, then we're not aligned. But really most importantly is if your uh, thinking and actions are consistent, that's going to be reflected to your customers and community. They're going to know. So, if you are treating your employees, your partners consistent with what you want it like caring in terms of your culture, that should naturally flow to your clients and your communities who you're selling with or do- doing with. I love to use uh, an extreme example and putting politics aside, but Chick fil A, I think, is a phenomenal ex- example of an organization that has remained true to their culture from startup to today. The it's my pleasure culture. We're always going to be closed on Sundays, right? It's the experience, right? And you say, yeah, yeah, Adrian. Yeah. So what, like, what does that mean? Well, if you look at their average revenue per store, it's double the revenue of their next peer, which would be McDonald's. Wow. Keep in mind that Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays, open less hours, pay higher wages. And by the way, they just sell chicken. In fact, I mean, some people say it might be the greatest chicken in the world, but all their competitors sell chicken. In fact, if you go into Chick-fil-A, I, you buy a sandwich, it doesn't even have lettuce and tomato on it, right? So when you think about that, they've created this connection with their community. I heard a statistic that for every franchise that is open, they have over 60,000 applicants interested in the franchise. Wow. And when they look for potential franchisees, they're not looking for someone who says, I want to make this huge profit and I want to, like, sell chicken. They're looking for folks that, I want to build a leadership development academy in my community and I'm going to be doing that through my stores, right? I know that's an extreme example, but a very important one.
1: So I know that you guys have probably learned so much from your time investing in companies so early on in their life cycle. Would
4: love to hear some of the takeaways that you've had. There's been a lot of learning. So just to back up a little bit. So, you know, my background was more of an operator as an operator. So I moved out to San Francisco in 2008 and basically just got really lucky and ended up at Box when it was about 25 people. Spent some time there, went to another startup in the ed tech space that we grew to like Over 20 million in revenue. And then in 2014, started doing some advising and consulting with early stage startups and started. Really, just like dabbling with small checks on the angel side, doing some small angel investments, but really didn't have a lot of investing experience at the time. But had it stuck in my head that I that like I thought there was an opportunity to build a B two B SaaS focused accelerator. There were a lot of generalist accelerators like YC and TechStars and 500, um, but there were only a few in the country focused on B two B SaaS. One of them was Excel Prize in DC. I reached out just to learn what they were up to. They were they had each started their own companies and were not sure if they were going to raise a second fund. So I ended up licensing the brand and eventually taking over the brand, but launched our own fund as a separate fund in San Francisco. It was a grind. It took like 15, maybe 18 months to raise that first fund. It was a small fund just to prove the concept. In hindsight, you know, at the time, it was really frustrating. In hindsight, uh, I'm surprised anyone gave me any money to invest. I had like basically no investing experience at the time. So certainly made a lot of mistakes. so some of the mistakes I made early on as an investor a lot had to do with decision making and process around follow-on investments. so as a new accelerator and you know it was just me for the first two years like I, there were a lot of instances where I probably made follow-on investments for the wrong reason. so maybe you know I, I was building a relationship with the founder, I got really close with them. Maybe they were struggling to raise money from other people, but like I really wanted it to succeed. And I was either protecting an investment that maybe wasn't going to work otherwise or protecting a relationship. Looking back on it, I think there were a lot of learnings along the way around building more process and being more diligent around decision making processes for those follow on investments. So that was one. I think the other was, you know, having. Investing in ideas that you really liked where you didn't have a lot of conviction on the founder, Not a, basically none of those worked out. <laughs> and so I think the age we're investing in, it's so much around the founder and founder fit, like founder market fit.
1: Touching back on streamingfaith.com, there was something there in terms of layering technology on top of something that you already knew well. Um, And something that you knew that the rest of the community already knew well. I'd love to hear you just speak on that and, and opportunities for entrepreneurs who maybe think that they don't necessarily understand how to build a tech company, but they see problems in their communities and in their everyday lives.
5: When you are placed in a position where it is about survival or it is about solving something to mitigate risk or to mitigate loss then something clicks inside of you that you cannot learn in an entrepreneurship support program, a pre-accelerator, accelerator, accelerator, incubator, co-working space, et cetera. What happens if we can never go back into a physical space because of a new normal? What if we can't meet face-to-face for an accelerator program? Are we saying that we're not going to have any more disruptive startups? You, You know what I mean? So I think that and I want to kind of bring this all together for you, is if you can figure out how to hack yourself first and hack the pain points that you might be dealing with, then you can apply that to other areas, industries Problems that you can solve as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, as an investor.
1: And so, just diving a little bit more into your time at both Cross Culture and at Mac, could you give us a little bit of insight into what you look for in investments and what your investment thesis looks like?
6: Yeah, so the investment thesis, we call it. Cultural investing and a lot of folks take that and create their own kind of kind of meaning for it. The way that we look at it is that human behavior drives everything in our in our world. And it usually starts with things on the consumer side that grow into into the enterprise um, side of things. And so really what we're doing is we're we're trying to identify emerging behavioral trends. And that could mean spending patterns, it could mean activities mean a, a ton of different things. And once we identify one of these emerging trends, then we put it through our our data set, if you would, to see if it has staying power. Because what is popular culture? It's it's basically a group of behaviors that become social norms, behaviors that stick around. And so our our thesis is that if we can identify what highlight and identify what people what, what behaviors people are starting to take up and accurately predict which of those behaviors are going to stick around. We invest in companies that are building solutions that fit with, with those trends and those behaviors. We're essentially investing in the next great companies of tomorrow, right? Because, because all we're doing is investing where people are going to spend their time and money.
1: So, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you was what you see in terms of trends for use cases for drone technology. And as a follow up, what are some areas that Percepto is positioned to continue to differentiate itself
7: from competitors? So with Percepto, I think what the most exciting thing that we're doing is we actually have uh, an autonomous robot collecting data. Ultimately, what we're offering is, you know, a solution that's using this data to create a better understanding of a facility and reports and alerts. But having that autonomous drone, autonomous robot piece is a very challenging one, but also a very valuable one. And I I think around robotics and about visual analysis, you're going to see more need from an industry standpoint and more solutions coming up because it's becoming less complicated to build hardware, less complicated to create those solutions. And from an industry standpoint, it became more kind of known that this is the solution exists. And, and as more people will see other people having them, they will also want them. So I do see robotics as a key kind of trend that is changing. Heavy industries keep advancing. I think from the industry standpoint, there's two trends that are driving that. The first one is what we call industry 4.0. So of course, Companies understand, like they they understood a decade ago or more than they need to change how they see IT. Now they understand that they need to change how they base their operation based on data. And it's not only Percepto, it's also SCADA and all the sensing capabilities that are going around. There's a lot of different ways for heavy industries to absorb data and use this data to make better decisions. And, and SCADA, for example, which is the sensors on the critical components in a, in a heavy industry facility, its industry today, it's more than 15 billion and growing about 20% a year. So the need is there to do that change for the industry. The second trend that I see is that what, what we call, um, I, I don't know if the, na- the name is correct, but uh, manless uh, sites. Basically, more and more companies are focused on how they manage their remote operation. You see Rio Tinto managing the entire mine without having any person on the mine, almost no person in the mine, not, not really nothing. And, and in other companies, like electrical companies, they have distribution sites for for power for hundreds across each state here in the US. So you have a need to remotely manage sites that are unmanned. And technology, not only robotics, also sensing, and of course, cloud and, and AI over those. <coughs> Hurt, uh, of data, just a way for you to do that in a much more effective way.
1: What made you decide to, to start Stitch Crew in the first place?
8: So we really started it as a frustration because we felt like there's incredible programs already in the state doing great work, but we felt there wasn't really an independent program that was exclusively focused on high growth entrepreneurs. So it was really out of frustration that tried to talk to a a few key stakeholders in the state to see if they would do something. And everybody was super excited about it, but nobody would really launch anything. (laughs) So luckily, around the same time we were having those conversations, we started talking to the Oklahoma City Thunder And they actually talked to us about doing something about what can we do and how can we support. And they actually pitched us about the opportunity to partner, to launch an accelerator program. But it really just grew out of frustration that we felt like there was a huge gap in the market uh, providing those resources to high growth entrepreneurs.
1: So when you're looking at companies to bring into each cohort of Stitch Crew, What types of things are you looking for from the founders?
8: We are industry agnostic. So really, we we don't look at the industry or we we really look at the strength of the team that we're onboarding. So because that's often all we have to go through, right? It's the ideas are there's a lot of ideas out there, but it's really it comes down to the execution. And to execute, you need a really strong team. So that's really what we look for. We look for founders who are all in, who understand the problem incredibly well to a point that they almost obsess about it. <laughs> we look for founders that complement each other. So if you're a solo entrepreneur, that's okay too. We have worked with solo entrepreneurs that start out just with one person. But ideally, we like to see more than one person working on the problem and the reason why that is is we also like to see teams that complement each other on skills. So like you might be really great at building the product, but then do you can you sell it or do you have somebody in your team that can sell it? We felt there wasn't really an independent program that was exclusively focused on high growth entrepreneurs. So it was really out of frustration that tried to talk to a a few key stakeholders in the state to see if they would do something. And everybody was super excited about it, but nobody would really launch anything. (laughs) So luckily, around the same time we were having those conversations, we started talking to the Oklahoma City Thunder And they actually talked to us about doing something about what can we do and how can we support. And they actually pitched us about the opportunity to partner to launch an accelerator program. But it really just grew out of frustration that we felt like there was a huge gap in the market uh, providing those resources to high growth entrepreneurs.
1: We're talking about higher education now, but COVID is having a huge impact in elementary, middle and high school education as well. Would love to hear any thoughts that you have surrounding how that's going to impact things for younger students and parents as well.
9: I think this crisis has definitely shown everyone the value of K-12 teachers, especially at the elementary and the early childhood levels, it's that they're doing a lot more than just teaching. There's a whole childcare component. And I know parents are at their wit's end with how do you work from home if they're able to, or if they're a central worker and they need to go to work, how are you supposed to ensure that your child is still learning and going through their classes? They need a lot of management in addition to just teaching. So I think people are, there's going to be a lot of pressure to go back to school being open in the fall as soon as possible for K through 12 and for preschool. I mean, even over the summer, I think there'll be a couple of things that we see. I think we're going to see on the early childhood education side, I think we're going to actually see more calls for childcare regulation reform. So things like universal childcare, childcare tax credits. I think that People have realized what an essential service it is. And already we knew in this country that there were not enough people and the pricing was too onerous for many, but I think it's really shown we need it. So I do think there will be more calls there for that. And in K-12, I think that a couple of things are going to happen. On the one hand, there are going to be a number of parents who are fearful, rightfully so, of sending their kids back to school in the fall. And I do think we'll actually see an increase in the number of uh, people being homeschooled. Right now, about uh, about 3% of the U.S. homeschools their children, but surveys indicate that as many as 10% of parents would like to if they had options and if they knew how to do it. This crisis has given parents tons of options. If you look at the ed tech companies that serve K through 12 content, they've been exploding three, four, five, ten times the number of users as they normally have. So parents have now been exposed to these companies and it's a real it's realistic that they could actually put their kids through it. So I think homeschooling population will actually double. In addition to that, I think now that parents have seen what their child does at school all day, I think kids' parents will be a lot more engaged in their children's education.
1: Amazing, amazing. And so could you maybe take us back just one step further and talk about what made you all so interested in disrupting the education space in the first place and providing this resource for students, teachers, parents?
10: Yeah, for sure. So initially, we've been designing and building games and education for a while. We knew that games has the impact to really transform education. Just because kids growing up nowadays, they grew up with games and and technology products rather than having to do education the traditional route. And so when we were building games, what we found out really um, early was traditionally the way educational games are built, they were built around a specific topic. And so, for example, I would build a fractions game. So it it worked, but then for, for teachers in the classroom and for kids, kids would smell the education right off the bat. And for teachers, it actually, those types of educational games are actually quite hard to implement into the classroom because teachers would have to learn how does the game teach the topic? They would have to find a time, for example, if I am, Playing a fractions game, I would have to find time to squeeze this game in when I'm actually teaching fractions, and it's really hard to get data out from a game that's specifically designed around a topic. So, um, there, even though it was meant to be fun, it, it's a lot of times it creates a lot more work for teachers. So the idea that Edna and I had was what if we can just take all the activities that teachers are doing today and all of the content that is already readily available and plug it into a game environment. So that way it's going to be much more fun for kids and we get to help teachers with a lot of their classroom tasks and when you, when we do it in that kind of strategy, so it's gamifying the whole thing inside a game environment rather than just putting points. It allows us as a team to really focus in on making the, the, the product fun for kids and then making sure that as long as we're able to ingest content from, from a content provider or whether we build the content ourselves, it just allows us to have that focus on fun.
11: Yeah, and for me, I think the stuff that really fueled my passion even more, like in early on, um, was just seeing the early versions of Bottle in action, and, and just like the impact that it has. There's an after-school program we we're working with, and just hearing from the, we were in communication with the executive director, and she'd mentioned one of the students who we'd when we went to visit, we'd met him, and how he was super just like insecure about studying and math and didn't have that like excitement about it. And just she was talking about how like, yeah, he uses bottle, he loves it. And now he's telling everyone to call him the math boy. So just even seeing that, like the confidence in kids rising, like that was something that really fueled our passion to just keep going and keep building something that can have an impact in classrooms and help with things like test anxiety and just giving kids a really fun way to assess them to where they, they don't have that test anxiety going in and they can just answer it and have fun and be willing to try again even when they fail. I
1: know you guys just recently closed around the funding and a decent percentage of our listener base is early stage entrepreneurs. And so being able to get some transparency and understanding what that process looks like from an entrepreneur's point of view, I think would be really exciting for a lot of people to hear about. So if you'd feel comfortable, we'd love to hear you share what that process was like for you all.
12: Yeah, absolutely. I know I would find a lot of value in hearing kind of how the process is myself. So we'd love to share more on that. I guess the initial process starts with when you realize you need funding. For us, we built this not intending that it was going to be as big as what we're aiming for right now but more just as a side hustle that's that's what it started with but when we saw the initial traction it became obvious wow we, we really need funding for this to get as big as what we want it to be and become synonymous with text message marketing worldwide and for that to even happen we we had to have that mental shift from bootstrapping to then seeking funding and I was fortunate that i had great mentors who had previously taken me through the process and I had some exposure to it. But if you haven't already, then of course that, that would probably be my first advice. Find someone who has been through it. Contact somebody who has either just saw funding or somebody who is a VC or somebody who has exposure to it, like yourself, where they could get that information on what is the customs? What is the typical way? What is the best way to get in touch with people? But just from my end, what I've seen be most effective is getting introductions. And it might be hard or it might be scary as somebody who's never sought funding before to have the audacity to just approach an investor who obviously has a busy, busy lifestyle and a busy time, but and pitching them on the idea.
1: You talked about you getting started after identifying the problem. I think millions of people every day wake up and and see problems they want to solve, but don't necessarily take those action steps to go out and do it. What experiences earlier on in your life or character traits that you have, do you think prepared you to say, okay, look, I'm ready to attack this problem when I see it?
13: Yeah, I think there's a lot of problems. And I I don't think there's, they're just more and more. I, I think that we're in an era that information is accessible and anyone can do what they set their mind to, given a lot of resources. And I think I got really lucky. I, I think I was part of, of Babson, which was a great community. We got introduced to, to Dave Heath, the CEO of Bombus Socks, who was really core in our story here and in, in helping us fundraise our pre-seed and seed. But realistically, I, I think it just took day by day, right? So our whole kind of mantra, this is not my own, but it's endurance and optimization. Frankly, we started literally what we did is we took products that were on the market we filled them into our bags of quote unquote cleaning products early on. And it it worked for a pre-launch, but it wasn't our proprietary formula. And this is 2017. And we ran a Kickstarter there and got a little bit more progress, but we had the ingredient story down, but not the brand. Right. So fast forward to 2018. We launched in an Indiegogo. We had a couple more products on the market. Now we had hand. Dish, APC, and laundry. We had finally our own formulations, and we had you know a long, obviously, process to get there. But then we didn't have the packaging story, and the the Indiegogo was successful. But the big pushback was: look, you have this beautiful brand, you have ingredients that people can actually understand, but that's not enough. It wasn't it wasn't exciting enough for customers, for investors, for kind of the world to see. So fast forward another six months, kind of February, March of twenty nineteen. And we figured out it was milk cartons. And it was this light that went off, a light bulb, and it saves a lot of plastic. It can sit on retail shelves. Why can't someone do this? So did about six months of of traveling around the USA to figure out the the right team members, the right partners, and literally just talking to people. So it really was a two, three-year pre-launch process of what is the solution? It wasn't, we didn't start it and it worked. It it did take time and just take iteration and, and optimization.
1: One, one of the last things that you talked about there was traveling around the country to find some of the right partners and team members. What are some of the things that you look for in individual, both in terms of personal characteristics, but also values they can bring to the table?
13: Yeah, I I'll probably break this down into to three pieces. We've been really lucky to have a terrific team, both a terrific team of investors and a terrific executive team and just a, a terrific general team. I think for me, one of the most important char- characteristics is is loyalty. I think there's a, a big movement now, especially with a lot of younger professionals, that they're hopping around quite a bit. So it's six months here, you know, six months there, a year there. And for us, we very much actually leaned into individuals that usually have stayed at their previous stops for for longer than two years. Not to say that the alternative is bad, different situations for a host of things could happen, but we've really enjoyed individuals that have really tried and committed to their different companies and organizations and your schools, whatever it may be. So that was really important for us. And to date, we have yet to have anyone quit, have a really Amazing. close-knit team. We're really thankful for that stat. Part of it's also because of our, our backstory. We, we have half the team in Puerto Rico. And we have half the team in New York City, and now we have this burgeoning office in Tulsa. And I think part of the reasons that we've really cared about locations, communities, geographies to do that. So that was the first. I think the second is I personally like the Dazzle, people that just are really energetic and upbeat about about life, about our solutions, about entrepreneurship. Um, I think it's a little bit harder to, to obviously measure, but personally, I really enjoy that trait in people. And then I think the last is just being a good person, try to leave egos out of the room. I think the first year or two, it matters. I think it really starts to matter if the company sees success in three, four or five being a good person, try to leave egos out of the room. I think the first year or two, it matters. I think it really starts to matter if the company sees success in three, four, or five years. So just trying to make sure the right people on the boat that care about the products they're working on, that care about the mission, but then always put product excellence ideally in front of saving the world, because that's an important piece. And not to go too off topic here, but we think usually the right individuals are the ones that really care deeply about the product first and the mission second, rather than the mission first and then the product second. That's where we found the sweet spot.
1: As we've talked about and if want to share with the broader world, we're in the process of launching a pitch competition where we're going to invest Uh, up to $250,000 in college-based entrepreneurs uh, across the country uh, this upcoming year. Very excited to share that and announce that. But for the college entrepreneurs who are listening into the podcast, I think it'd be great for them to hear someone who built a company in college that is still growing, even in the face of the times that we're living in. Maybe some of the obstacles that you had to deal with as an entrepreneur while still being a young person, still being in school, and how you overcame some of
14: those obstacles. Most certainly. And Chandler, again, you and your team at Atento are inspiring and empowering such incredible work. I can't wait Truly, really count on us that hundreds, if not thousands of next geners are going to be applying for those grants and that investment. That's what it's about, man. So I'm pumped up for that. For me, I'll be honest that being a college entrepreneur, it all really boils down to how well you can learn to say no. And that kind of sounds depressing if anybody out there is hearing this and you have big ambitious dreams for what it's going to be like starting and building a company in college. And keep going. Don't get me wrong. I did it myself and it was so worth it. But ultimately, it was a struggle and it it is always going to be a struggle. But if you can hone in on where you want to be spending your time and where you want to be getting better and focused on improving, then that will be the key to your success. And for me, going back to my first years at Duke building NextGen, I wasn't able to dedicate the time I wanted into the company, let alone into my personal endeavors, whether that be the classroom or my social relationships, I was spreading myself too thin. And I didn't realize it at the time, but it very quickly became apparent to me that if I don't focus in a very limited capacity on maybe two or three or four things, then the six or seven I'm trying to tackle, they will all suffer because of my lack of an ability to say no and to prioritize. And it's really tough. Don't get me wrong. Because when you're at a campus, especially my experience personally at Duke, I wanted to do everything. I wanted to be a senator in the student government. I wanted to spend time with my fraternity brothers, perhaps. I wanted to play on the basketball practice team and also have a life and also do well in class and also build a company. Sometimes something's got to give. And so for me going into my later years at at Duke, I knew it wasn't going to be academics and I knew it wasn't going to be next gen HQ. And so that led me to really have, let's say, a very limited amount of time to allocate elsewhere. And that was how I was able to find success. Was it still a challenge? 100 million percent. Was it still impossible to balance? Of course, there's no equal equation that this one works out with. But You got to sacrifice, you got to keep trying and be open to change. And once I accepted that as the reality, I think it allowed me to start really prioritizing where I knew I wanted to be growing. And that led to ultimately my ability to put the time in, in the right areas.
0: Thank you all for listening to the greatest hits episode of the Be A Tento podcast. You can find be attento on whatever podcast listening app you use Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, all of those places. We look forward to bringing you brand new episodes with new hosts, fantastic guests. So keep a lookout.